One Hope Church. Welcome. Church, we're glad you're here. Uh, make yourself at home if you need anything, please. Don't hesitate to ask. Um, we're going to continue this morning in our study of the book of Nehemiah. So we are in Nehemiah um, chapter 2. And I'll give a little a brief summary, and then we'll uh, go to Lord in Prayer and get into today's uh, lesson. So, uh, brief summary, if you remember from last week, if you were here, of course, if you weren't here, then you can't remember, because uh, you weren't here, but that's okay. So that's what we have the summaries for. Um, and so, in this situation, um, the kingdoms of, of uh, Israel has been, well, the kingdom of Israel has been divided northern, southern kingdom. Um, some time has passed and people have been taken away in various captivities. And Nehemiah is one who is in captivity. He is um, part of the Persian Empire. They're under the authority of the Persian Empire. And he is a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And he hears word of what the state is back in Jerusalem. And he hears that the, the gates have been burned and that the walls are in disrepair. There, there's not a solid wall. There's, there's um, places where it's been you know, pretty much knocked down utterly and holes in other parts of the wall. It needs to be rebuilt. Um, and he is heartbroken when he hears about this. And he goes to the Lord in prayer um, and in fasting and he is, you know, just in, in earnest desire to see that situation change. And so he prays, um, you know, you imagine him just praying day by day by day. And uh, there's a few months that pass and he's before the king. And the king recognizes, because he says he hadn't been sad in the king's presence, you know, up until this point. And then the king recognizes his sadness and says, you know, this isn't that you don't feel well. You know, we have a, know how it is when you, when you don't feel well. But this is, this is um, you know, your sadness is, is of a broken heart. You know, what's, what's going on here? And then this is when Nehemiah lets um, King Artaxerxes know the situation. And then God had worked. Um, and, and we talked about this from last week. But there's a key phrase in there where, you know, it says, Nehemiah was afraid... And then he spoke. You know, and that was just really a key lesson from last week. That, you know, there's, there's going to be times where we are fearful in life. Um, you know, there, there are times you're going to be fearful, but what do we do in those times? You know, what do we do in those times? And what we're encouraged to do, I think over and over again, in the scripture is not to trust in our own strength, but to trust in the Lord's strength. So he's afraid, he prays. And he answers. And really, that's a great lesson, you know, for us. Because there are going to be different situations at different points of life that happen of conflict or chaos. And, and we're going to be tempted to react in our flesh, whether that is a fight, whether that is a flight. But we need to react in the spirit. So we need to pray and then to do what the right thing is regardless. And that's what Nehemiah does. And then the king asks him and says... Um, you know, what, could I, what can I do for you then? And so he asked for permission to be gone for a certain amount of time to go back and to rebuild those walls. But he's like, 
and, and to build those gates, but I'm going to need some wood, you know, for that. And, I, and, and you see he's planning on staying a little while. He's like, and, and I need some wood for my house because i got to have a little house while I'm there. <laughs> and so he asked for all that. And so the king sends him letters um, for he, so he can pass through these different provinces on his way there, different parts of the Persian Empire, and, um, and gives him, you know, permission to, to have, um, you know, the wood that he needs. And he starts to make his journey back to Jerusalem. Now, remember, again, this isn't just like, hey, I'm just going over the hill. You know, just over the hill in this case is like a thousand miles. He's got to go like a thousand miles to get back to Jerusalem. That's a trek. You know, it's going to take some some time um, in how they traveled in those days. So, where we pick up in chapter two, or we pick up in chapter two, he's made it to Jerusalem. Okay, he's made it to Jerusalem. He knows there's already going to be opposition to what he's trying to do, but he's made it to Jerusalem. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into today's today's lesson. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege, for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you for your word, and it is truth, and we can learn and grow from it. Lord, we thank you for Nehemiah and his testimony, and though many um, generations have come and gone um, since his day, yet he, um, through his his zeal for you, his, his love for you, still teaches us um, through your word, and we're, we're so thankful for that this morning. So help us to learn what you would have us to learn. And we thank you this morning, most of all, for Jesus, who you sent uh, for us to pay the debt that we could not pay, to give us life though we were dead in our sins. And we thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So in chapter 2, verse 11... Nehemiah, he says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down in its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials or the rest who did the work." Uh, so let's just stop there for a second. So you see, you know, he, he gets there and he doesn't just, you know, on day one say, you know, here's who I am and here's what I've come to do. But he, he needs to assess, you know, the situation. He's not hasty. You know, he, I mean, even three days isn't a long time, but, you know, he's not hasty. He's got to get a lay of the city and what's going on. And he's also got to figure out a little bit of who's trustworthy. Who's not trustworthy? You know, and how am I going to approach this? And he needs to have a good plan because he knows if he just goes to the people and says, I'm here and we're going to rebuild this wall. But if he doesn't have a really good understanding of what he's talking about, then the people are going to do what? They're going to look at him and go, nah, you're not going to lead us anywhere. 
because you know with what he's attempting to do there is risk because they they have enemies they have enemies who don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt and so you know trying to do this but without a clear plan and how how it's going to be accomplished is just going to invite those enemies give those enemies opportunity to come in and slaughter them so like there is risk in what Nehemiah is proposing we have to look at this in a, in a bigger political sense than just some people who want to go and build a wall. It's not just a wall. It's not like, hey, we're just going to go out in the countryside and we're just going to build us a nice little wall and when we're done, we can just like sit on top of it and we can have a picnic. That's not what Nehemiah is trying to do. The reason this is significant because these are the walls of, of Jerusalem and especially in the geopolitical context of, of, of this time and for, for thousands upon thousands of years, a city needs a wall for protection. That's what they needed. Um, so, you know, we don't think about that so much today. Like, Athens, Georgia does not have a, a big wall around it because our war, you know, warfare has changed. Right, and wall is not going to do you so much good when people just fly their planes overhead and drop their bombs. But back then, everything was a ground assault, and the fastest that you had were like horses and chariots. So everything is a is like a ground assault, and if you're going to take a city, it's not hard too hard to take that city if if it doesn't have walls. You can kind of come at it from everywhere. But when it has walls, you have to breach the wall. You have to break through or go over the top. And it's, there's all sorts of things people can do to defend themselves in that situation. Many times when people want to you know, attack a city, you know, they kind of put their arm in the outside. Okay, nobody can leave. And we're just going to see who runs out of food first. Either the people in the city are going to run out of the food or the people in the field are going to run out of food or water. Who runs out first? Army got to go home because their supply chain broke down or they had bad weather or the people in the city got to surrender because they've run out of food and water. Interesting thing about Jerusalem is that it's up on a hill. Whenever in the scripture you see you know, they went up to Jerusalem. You, you couldn't go down to Jerusalem. Whatever direction you came from, you were going, you go from east, north, south, west, you're going up to Jerusalem. And so, back when um, Jerusalem was made, you know, the capital city for, for Israel, where the king set up their kingdom you know, and, and ruled from Jerusalem, that was strategic. That was strategic. Um, and it's a pretty incredible, um, you know, you can see pictures, you know, I encourage you if you haven't recently or haven't at some point, you know, um, if you get, get a chance to go, go. Obviously, that's the best thing you can do with that, even though a lot has changed since these days. You still get some sense of how things were. Um. But you can at least you know, you can go on Google Earth or Google Maps, whatever, and fly around it and check it out and see. And you will see that it is up and it is, it is strategic. 
And so you get an idea of why the enemies of, of the Jewish people would not want that city to be strong and to have a wall and to have gates and to be, you know, fortified. Because with that, you know, means you can't just dominate those people like they would be able to do, you know, in the current environment. I also just, a little side note, um, you know, just some of the, the names here are, are interesting. Like, you can figure out, like, kind of what's going on in certain places. It's like, why is that one called the refuse gate? Well, that's where, all the, that's, that's where we send all the garbage. That's where the garbage leaves the city. You know, it's like they have names for different things. The fish gate, I, I don't know. The, probably a fish market. I mean, we can figure that out. That's where people brought in, you know, fish to sell would be in that part of the, you know, through that gate. Um, and so you can see, you know, things get, get named for different reasons, and um, that can be kind of cool uh, to, to look at. But let's move forward. In verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. You see, now that he's seen everything and he knows he's got a plan and he's got a way that he's going to communicate this information, then he gathers people. Then he says, here's what I'm looking to do. And I'm looking to do this because this is what God has you know, put on my heart to do. And let me give you some evidence that we're on the right track here. And so he relays everything of his encounter with the king. And what was said there, he's got the documents, you know, he's got his paperwork, um, you know, in order. And he, so he's able to give them that whole story. And then they respond. They respond, you see, because they've bought into it now. Let us arise and build. Let us arise and build. Because they get it. I love that. I think that's really really neat, just that progression, because now what had just been in Nehemiah's heart has been transferred to all of their hearts. It was just in Nehemiah's mind, now it's been transferred to their minds. Now they get the vision, and they want to participate in it. It says, so they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalot the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we are his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. Because again, you know, these folks, you know, these three that are mentioned here, you know, they want to control Jerusalem. They want to have power, you know, over it. And Nehemiah has to stand up, you know, strong against that opposition and says, no, but he's not just saying no because, you know, I'm here and I'm going to be successful. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. You know, and, and, 
as we take the story of Nehemiah and we put that into the context of our own lives and our own church, we have to, um, as we make those spiritual applications, we have to remember, you know, we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual warfare. There's a real enemy who seeks to destroy. The scripture talks about the enemy being like a, a lion on the prowl, seeing whom he may devour. So, as we think about that, we need to maintain our humility. Yes, God has given us gifts. Yes, God, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has you know, redeemed you, and he's given you his Holy Spirit, and he's given you power, he's given you his word, he's given you ability, he's given you gifts. But never are we to have the perspective, you know, I am going to be successful because of me. We need to take this lesson from Nehemiah. The Lord will give us success. You see, we can have confidence. We can have boldness. The Lord will give us success. But who's going to give us success? The Lord. if, If there is success, it comes from the Lord. And we need to remember that and be humble. It should also just remind us, you see, Nehemiah is able to set out what he is, he, he's going to do because, again, he spent that time on his knees because he is so closely connected to God. But, you know, so many times I think we want to have success, we just kind of want to do it, whatever that is, whatever it is. And we kind of, and, and but we got to remember, like disconnected from God, what is success? Is there any success disconnected from God? We just asked that question this morning. In your life, is there any point in your life you're going to be able to look at anything that you hold as valuable and say, "I had success, not because of God and not connected to God. I just had success." Is there any, is any of that that could go into the, that category, if anything could, that would be lasting? That would have eternal value to it? And yet, we, we have this... Yeah, what I'm trying to get at that is that should drive me and drive you, drive all of us to greater intimacy with God. Because we should realize that any day that we are not, like, connected to him, like, we are just spinning our wheels. Like, we are literally the hamster on the wheel at that point, and that wheel is connected to, like, to the world's machine, basically, and we're going nowhere. Like, we're going nowhere. We're just spinning. But not moving forward. Like, what, what if we... What if we did this? I'm just throwing this out here this morning. What if we did this? What if you tracked a, a couple of weeks and each day, you know, you had to evaluate at the end of the day, I was connected to God or I was disconnected to God. And so that day then, you know, we recognize was either like a day that's going to have some lasting eternal value connected to it or not. So if we did that for 14 days, how many of those days would have value? And how many of those days were like, 
we didn't get that. We did not pull value out of those days. We just spun our wheels. Like, sure, we went to work. Sure, we, our kids were fed, or we were fed, or somebody was fed, or whatever it was. But of eternal value, what happened? What happened? Like, are, are we closer to Jesus? Is anybody else closer to Jesus? Or we just spin in place? And, and, I, and just, we got to acknowledge this morning that that has nothing to do with busyness. You got to recognize that the person who, like, doesn't do anything in a day, on a particular day, and the person that has 50 appointments and is, like, nonstop can both accomplish nothing. Like, busyness does not equal success in the sight of God. Busyness does not equal eternal value. And many times, the busyness is just to be so busy. People, I think, sometimes want to be just so busy that when it's time to go to bed, the mind is too tired to think about the futility of it all. That it doesn't matter because that busyness is not connected to God. And so then, therefore, you can just go to sleep quickly. It's like it's a distraction. That busyness can just be a distraction to not have to deal with spiritual reality. I was busy. Listen, (laughs) if you're a follower of Jesus, at the judgment seat of Christ, I don't find, I don't don't think there are going to be any any rewards for just busy. It's like, oh, you got a busy award. I don't think that one's at the judgment seat of Christ. Busy. Yeah, busy crowd. I, I just don't. I haven't seen it. I haven't found it. Now, work, good work, and hard work with purpose that's connected to God. Certainly, there's reward for that. But there's not reward for just boy, you filled up your calendar. <laughs> there's not reward for that. Okay, so let's. But the God of heaven will give us success. He's connected. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. So, if if we're going to connect this to the New Testament, we have to connect our work to the work of Jesus. And what is the work of Jesus? That he went to the cross and he died for our sins. That he is a risen Savior. He's going to be a returning king. That he told us to go and to make disciples of all peoples. So, you know, these people had Nehemiah's vision. Well, who dictates our vision? Jesus. Jesus has to be the, like, vision ultimately for the follower of Jesus has to come from Jesus because he's the king. So he's given us his big vision to make disciples. Now, your role in that as we're going to get to chapter 3, where they actually are building the wall and people have different jobs. People have different roles and different jobs in that. But it needs to be connected to the key vision. Their vision is, we got to build this wall and build the gates. Not everybody actually is going to physically 
pick up the bricks and put the bricks on the wall. But there's other things that need to happen that if they don't happen, people that are putting bricks on the wall can't. So we have different roles to play in that vision that Jesus gives us to go and make disciples. But we've all got to be connected to uh, that work. Like that's where our vision really has to be. It has to be with the command that Jesus gave us. It It needs to be centered in that. So it's like, yes, I might have a supporting role in that. But I have to connect the reality that I do my supporting role so that disciples can be made. So imagine, like, what in your life would change if, if everything that we do is connected to Jesus' vision that we make disciples? Then what does that do for, for how, you know, we spend time and money and effort and energy and all these things that we have to spend? Those are all spendables. Right, so we have those to spend. I just made up a word, I know. <laughs> but we just, we have those things to spend. How are we spending them connected to the vision that Jesus has given us? Or are they connected? Like, what, what sort of changes do we need to make there? But let's, let's read in verse 3, in chapter 3. And... I'm debating this because we like to read every verse. I might just ask you to read some of these verses today so because we need to get part into chapter 4. But it says, Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred in the tower of Hananel. Next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachar the son of Emery built. Now the sons of Hanasanah, built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. In my mind, there's also like an iron kind of fish or something like there. I just kind of kind of see that, but that's not in scripture here. So, you know, that's speculation, but that's in, what's in my head. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Bananah, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not support the work of their masters. I wanted to stop there for a moment because we see a couple of things here early on in this chapter. One is like different people are given different assignments, so different parts of the gates or the walls you know, to work on, Right? There's a plan with that. Like there's some order, you know, with that. There's a, there's a reason for that. But also, here what we see in verse 5 is not everybody participates. Their nobles did not support the work. So now, throughout all of history, anytime anyone in the world, in any language, reads the book of Nehemiah, these dudes didn't do the work. They get known forever for failing to do the work that they were supposed to do. That's bad. That's bad. 
all I want to say with that, like, look, I'm not looking to put on a big guilt trip this morning. That's not the goal here. But we certainly back then wouldn't want to have been those people that when things were all said and done, that we're, you know, we would be listed among the ones who like didn't do our share. And, and all I'm going to say with that for the gospel of Jesus moving forward, you don't want to be at the end of the life and going, you know, I didn't do my share. I, I didn't do what the Lord had portioned for me my part to do. See, because look, Here's the deal with this wall. This is smaller scale in a sense, but it's a big job. Like, wall of Jerusalem's a big job. Like, one dude couldn't go out there and be like, you know what? I'm building this wall and all the gates and all the things with nobody else's support, nobody else defending me, nobody else doing anything. I'm just going to go out there and do it. It's too big. And that's much smaller than go into all the world and make disciples of all the families of the earth. Nobody can, can do that, but that doesn't mean we don't do it. It just means we do our portion. We do the portion that is assigned to us. What is your portion? What's been assigned to you by Jesus, the vision giver? And are you, you know, working hard toward that or is it their nobles did not support the work? And nobles there can pretty much, I think that's a pretty good um, carryover to what Jesus has done for us because Jesus has, I mean, we've been made, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been put into the family of God and you've been made kings and priests to your God. You are a noble. You're a noble. But with that comes, with that privilege comes responsibility. That's the message here. That these nobles were people of, who had responsibility and they failed. Man, we don't want to be like that. So let's not. And on down through, and you see, I mean, people, Goldsmith made repairs. I just wanted to highlight a couple of things here. And like, so in verse, in verse 8, next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the Goldsmiths, made repairs. You know what he's usually dealing with? Fine, precious stuff. You can figure it out. Gold. His name Goldsmith. Gold. He deals with precious metal. And now he needs to go work with block. Like, I mean, large stone, common stone. Wood. What if he had said, you know, that's beneath me. I only work with the finest precious metals of the earth. I don't mess with block. Big old rocks. Again, we've been made kings and priests to our God, but nothing is below us. 
I mean, I, I hope that no matter, you know, just if you're feeling, if you're feeling a little bit, whatever, go find a dirty bathroom, like whether it's in your house or somebody else's house or a bar downtown, walk in and say, I'm here to clean this today and, and clean a dirty bathroom. Because nothing is like, for a follower of Jesus should be, I'm too good for that. Nothing for a follower of Jesus should be, that's beneath my level. He's a goldsmith working with block. And this next one, and next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. They're in the rich, they're in the uppity part of town. They're like, <laughs> y'all know what I'm saying. Hey, they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. What do you know? Okay, so it's <laughs> just a little Athens joke for you, maybe. I don't know if you catch what I'm saying there. But they have, you know, this guy works with gold. This guy's a perfumer. Like, he doesn't even work with metal. He works, you know, with, with liquids. He's a perfumer. And there he is building a wall so it's like what needs to be done is what needs to be done and if you're available to do it you're available to do it we need to have that approach you know in in life and and that's just good now i mean again we're gonna throw the caveat there that not every good thing is a good thing that you're the one that's called to do because we've got some folks who will Try to do everything. But to make sure the Lord wants you to do it. But be about the good work and nothing is below any of us. So they all, you can, uh, we'll let you read chapter 3, but just be encouraged of all these different people doing all these different things and building, you know, their, their sections. You know, they're, they're usually, they're building, um, I'm sure if, you know, they're building according to, you know, where things are located in connection to where they live. You know, it's, it's, it's local. There might have been a, a few specific people with specific skills that get pulled out to go handle a, a task. But, you know, there's a lesson there, too, when it comes to the gospel. Like, if every follower of Jesus is just working on reaching the people around them, then, you know, there's, there's places then where you do, you're not going to need missionaries, you get what I'm saying with that? You know, like we look at Thessalonica in the New Testament, and basically the Apostle Paul says, you know, the word of your testimony has gone forward, like everywhere in this region, like we don't, we don't have to say anything. Like Paul still might go there to encourage the church, but he's not going there like, man, if we don't go and share with those people, nobody will, because the church there has done its job. So you and I are salt and light in the earth. So you got to look at your, your locale. And, and you know, the people that you're around. And are those, do those people know more about Jesus? Have they heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus? Because of your presence there. And then the question to ask then, well, if it's not your job to share with those people, then whose is it? Who's coming in there and sharing with those people if it's not if if you're not the one doing it with your your coworkers? 
your place of operation. Well, you, you know, you're in, in your daily life, the places you frequent, who's going and sharing the gospel with those people that don't know him yet? Well, if the answer is nobody, and you're there, I think you might be able to figure out whose responsibility it is. I'm just, just saying. Like, if there's lost people around you, and there aren't other people there that are actively sharing the gospel with them, and you are there, guess what? That's the job that's been assigned to you at that particular point in your life. That should, I mean, that shouldn't be hard to figure out, but we have to recognize the reality of it. Whoa, that's not, you know, Missionary Jim's responsibility to come in here to my place of work or to come in here to my neighborhood or to come in here to whatever. Like, I am Missionary Jim. Like, in this, like, like God sent me here. God sent me here to do that job. Well, that's, man, imagine if everybody in the church thought like, like had that mentality and went, all right. Let's do this. Like, what would change? So let's go to chapter 4 real, very briefly here. Some good stuff. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews, and he spoke in the presence of of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the, the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. So, Sambalot, Tobiah, they're, they're talking smack. You know, they're trying, to, they're trying to do what? They're trying to plant seeds of doubt. They're trying to discourage the work so that people will stop. Enemy still take that tactic today? Discourage. Plant seeds of doubt. Divide. Because what if half the people say, they're right. We're going to stop building. Another half that, well, we want to keep building. And now there's this conflict from within, right? Even a fox, you know, foxes are pretty cool, but they, they don't weigh a whole lot. They don't weigh a whole lot. A fox would jump on it, it's going to break down their stone wall. You know, so they're talking their smack. Nehemiah responds, verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Now, those are some tough verses. Because basically, he's like, you know, what had happened to us because they had been carried off in captivity before, you know, what had happened to us, we want to happen, you know, let it happen to them. Let their reproach, like what they have said about us, may it come back on their own head. 
That's what Nehemiah asked for. He's not unjust to do so. He wants the wicked to be punished, and ultimately the wicked will be punished. However, again, in our context of the cross and the gospel, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, you know, to pray for them. You know, so how will we approach that today if people are actively against you and your work? We're not, you know, we're not asking you to go and pray, Lord, you know, may this come back on their own head and maybe they be carried off into captivity or whatever it is. You don't need to pray that. But you can pray, but you can pray for their what? And they can pray that they will be convicted. You can pay, pray that they will repent, repent, that they will become followers of Jesus. And you can also pray, as again as I often do, that if the Lord knows they will not stop, that the Lord would stop them from harming other people. But we, ha- we do need to remember... And everything, like, there is consequence for sin. And people, all of us, either pay our own consequences. I mean, we we all pay a certain amount of consequences, but I'm talking about an eternal sense before God, not talking about human consequences, or, you know, consequences here on on our earth, but I'm talking about before God. People either pay for their own, or, or they receive the payment that Jesus already made at the cross. It's one of those two. That should also motivate us to share the good news of Jesus with people. Because again, where would we be if people hadn't shared it with us? So verse 6, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. That's awesome. People had a mind to work. Like, good things happen when people get together like, we have a mind to work. In any... You know, whether it's an organization, a church, or whatever, good things happen when everybody's together and go, we got a mind to work. When people are kind of like, eh, things aren't so great. Now when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was going on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near to them came and told us ten times, they will come against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. And when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So, there's a combination here of things that happen. You know, Nehemiah prays. And then he also takes some practical steps. He takes people and he, put, you know, he puts guards at the weakest points. That's strategic. 
Then he has, I mean, he's basically arming everyone. You know, and says like, and, and, and he gives this words of encouragement, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And now he has the ability to call on them to remember because they have a history. Because they came out of Egypt after being slaves for 400 years. They have, a, they have a history as a people of seeing the great and awesome work of God on their behalf. And so he's able to call that and say, remember that. And fight. Like, in this case, you know, be willing to fight if they come in. Like, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. Be ready. So... There's that combination of relying on God and then also using the practical things that God had given for them to be prepared to defend themselves. There's a combination of those two things. Something really fun is happening upstairs. We, we'll focus here for another minute. So, again, spiritual battle, spiritual warfare that we're in. We know Jesus has won victory. At the cross. We know he's going to return as king and he's going to put a stop to all evil. We also know that until then we need to put on our armor every day. And we need to be prepared to stand. So there's the understanding of who God is and what God is doing and his power and that without him do, you know, working, we've got nothing. And then there's still the need for us to take the practical steps, practical application, day by day. Because we're in a spiritual battle. So now imagine, what would you say? What would you say if you were back, just put yourself inside the wall, and you see some folks, and there's a low spot in the wall, and they're supposed to be guarding that and defending that. And they all just like put their swords on the ground, and they're, you know, 20 yards away, and they're like playing cards. You'd be like, hey, um, if y'all wouldn't mind going back over to your part of the wall and, and doing your job, that'd be great because you see, if they come through here, they're not just going to kill you. They're also going to, you know, we're, we're, you're endangering us as well. Right? Y'all know where I'm going with that. How often do we as, as followers of Jesus on any given day go, oh, I can just put, take my armor off, put my sword down, walk over here, do whatever. It'll be fine. As if there's not an enemy who's going to take advantage of that situation. And in a spiritual sense, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Basically, it's like fight for what you hold dear to you, like spiritually. So that's our that's like our job. Like we all got to be. We're all going to be doing that. Because there's people around us who are counting on us to do that. 
because when we're strong, it helps protect them. Especially the lows, lows the Lord who has entrusted into our care. So here, here's the reality of it. I'm going to say this just to us who are parents for a minute. Many of you will be parents one at some point. But if you're a parent, so being spiritually healthy and strong isn't just about you. Like, you leave yourself vulnerable where you've just left yourself vulnerable, okay? But when you leave yourself vulnerable, you also leave your children vulnerable. Like, with that comes a lot of responsibility for us. We don't think the enemy's looking to attack them. And we might not even be as in, if we're not in tune with God, we might not even see where that attack is coming from. And we may have our kids exposed on the front line and exposed to danger and we're not even fully aware of it ourselves. So that's heavy. But we all have that responsibility. We have it for ourselves and for others and for the church because we don't want to leave parts of the church vulnerable. Like we have responsibility. So may God help us in that. Finishing in doubt, verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. And those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore um, his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separating the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So, I mean, if you see this scene, so now it's gotten even more difficult because those who are carrying burdens, like they're carrying a sword and what can I get, you know, what big old rock or wood or what am I carrying with the other? And then those who are building, you know, got to take it and they got to have two hands to place it on the wall and do all things. You know, they've still got a sword. They got to work now with this sword. You know, I mean, that's not ideal conditions. That's not ideal conditions to, to get the work done the most efficient way. But it's what needed to be done. And so they did it. And they were prepared. And that, I think that passage there just goes to the reality of, like, what God asks us to do isn't, doesn't mean it's going to be easy. If God asks you to do it, doesn't mean, like, oh, well, that's going to be simple now because God asked me. That's not the case. There's, I mean, in Nehemiah, you know, I think this is how we kind of, in our own lives, want to read this. In our own lives, we kind of read like, and so Nehemiah had to build the wall, and so there was no opposition from anyone around, and God provided hover pads and robots that took the blocks, you know, where they needed to go on the wall, and we, you know, held a controller and put them in place. 
Because that sounds a whole lot easier than what's described here. And couldn't God do that? I mean, he's God. So, of course, he could do it that way. Or God has his angelic beings carry everything and built the wall for us. We woke up, we went to bed one night, there was no wall. We woke up in the morning, best wall ever. <laughs> you know, that's... Anyway. Um, that's not what we read here. But there are so many times, I hear all the time... I felt like God wanted us to do this, but this is hard. As if those things are mutually exclusive. I felt like God wanted to do this, but this is hard. Now, I would actually say it's more likely on, that you're on the right track because it's hard. Because I would be surprised if God gave you to do something to do and there wouldn't be opposition to it and that it wouldn't be hard. Like, I would actually be more skeptical that it was actually from God if you did something and it was easy. It's probably like, mm. the enemy at least was not interested in that at all. Like, the enemy was just like, whatever. Because there was no opposition. Expect it. And I think that that's one of the things that will help you, help all of us in life, if our anticipation is struggle. Our anticipation is struggle. And we learn to have joy in struggle. And we have exceeding joy when we get those moments in life that there's not struggle, that are just peace and calm. You get a season of peace and calm. Enjoy it. Yes. There's going to be more struggle, though. There's going to be more struggle. And I know, like, listen, that's a message that's not like, like, I want to go hear that one. I want to hear, about, I want to hear that there's going to be struggle. You know, people don't, you know, health, wealth, prosperity preachers are not going around selling struggle because people don't buy that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> struggle, preachers that preach on struggle you know, if you want to make money, you don't preach about struggle. You preach about easy. People throw all their money at easy. But struggle is much closer just to what we see in the scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. You see, God's people have to struggle. And apparently body slammed their friends <laughs> during Sunday school. Um. Anyway, yikes! All right, last verses. Last. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And at that time, I also said to the people, "Let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem, so that may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. A guard at night and a laborer by day." Now, I want to, I do want to remind us, you know, that it's a season that they're having to to be at this extreme level. It is a season. There's seasons in life. But when it's time for an extreme measures, like, just do what needs to be done. There will come times where 
There's just going to be struggle. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be not a lot of sleep. There's not a lot of sleep here. There's just not a lot of sleep. Because he's like, to be a guard by night and a laborer by day. I read that, and I'm like, man, that's terrible. And these, these jokers are going to do this for like 52 days. Straight. Of very little sleep. Of full exertion of what their bodies, you know, it's like really needing like a supernatural boost to be able to do what they're being called to do on very little sleep. So it said, neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. Can I go get some water? Got to take my weapon with Same clothes. That's... Whew. It's all the fish gate. Like the entire city. It smells like fish gate. I mean, it's going to be pretty rough in terms of, of that. But it was what needed to be done. It was for a season, but it was what needed to be done. And they did it. That's what we're ultimately going to see. They, they did it. But it wasn't easy. It was, it was difficult. There was opposition. But they knew the Lord was with them. We have that same thing today, folks. I mean, Jesus, when he gives us that vision and that, that mission to accomplish, what did Jesus say at the end of it? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's the best thing that we have. When God asks us to live our lives for his glory, we're, we're asked to live his li- our lives to, to make disciples of others, to do our part in building not the wall, but the church. Not a physical building, but the people of God all over the world, who, who will call on his name together. When he asks us to do that, yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's opposition. But he's also with us. And he is mighty. And we are not alone. Again, that, that seed of doubt from the enemy, one of those lies is, you're alone. It's too hard. It's not worth it. All those lies. But don't those lies drift away if we come to the truth that Jesus is with us? Don't those lies look small and look like what they are, lies, when we acknowledge the truth? Jesus is with us. This morning, let's go to his feet and be in his presence. As we take the bread and the cup, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, whether it's your first time or you've been here a thousand times, you have you know, the privilege to come to the Lord, um, to take that bread and that cup and to remember him. But remember, you can't, well, you can't remember somebody that you haven't met yet. But if you haven't met him, you can meet him even today. Um, and you can worship at his feet and then... Remember him your whole life and be with him and in his presence now and forever. Um, it's the best thing in the universe. You know, we get that. I mean, that's just not just a, fr- I mean, that's just reality. Jesus is the best one in the universe. Like, universe, period. Like, full stop. Jesus. And we have the privilege to give him praise. And so, in our open time, 
We really want to keep centered and focused on Jesus. You may have prayer requests. You may have things going on in your life. Please stay. We'll pray with you. We'll talk to you. But just for like the next 20 minutes, just eyes and, and attention, everything on, on Jesus, on Jesus. And we'll, we'll handle all those difficulties of life together as we go through um, day by day. But in this time, Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your love. And we pray that as we take this bread and this cup, we would just, again, be reminded and to be thankful of how wonderful you are, Jesus, and how great your sacrifice for us was. And that you will return and that you have given us a mission to accomplish in between. Lord, you've given us a vision far bigger than building the wall around Jerusalem. You've given us a vision to build your church all over the world. And so, Lord, we're thankful that we get to participate in our part of that in small ways. But yet, those small ways are, are huge in eternity, in terms of eternity and for people's lives and eternities, Lord. And we, we thank you. And we give you all the glory and all the praise for every good thing that comes out of our lives and out of our church. And just help us to be humble and to strive to follow you and to do our part of the work um, at each point. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.